here on retreat together. We have this remarkable and precious opportunity to explore what it means to be alive, what it means to be here, to deepen in our understanding of what is most true. And it's interesting to notice how we can come sometimes to a retreat with a really deep and beautiful sense of aspiration, of possibility, of even though we may not fully articulate it in words, but just some sense that there's, there's really more that's possible here in our life and in our practice. And sometimes after we've been here for a little while, what we notice is that there's a certain tendency that starts to develop in us where with the various struggles and the challenges that we're encountering, including the challenges of dealing with fans and bits of paper, <laughs> um, we start to think, you know, it would just be nice if things were a little easier, wouldn't it? I don't know if anyone else ever has that kind of thought. It would just be nice if things were a little easier. And it's really understandable how we might have that response. And yet, we can sometimes lose sight of our deeper aspiration in the wish for just things to be a little easier, a bit more comfortable, just, you know, not quite as hot or whatever it might be. In fact, it wasn't quite as hot today, at least this afternoon, so, you know, that one worked out. <laughs> and there's something really important about coming back again and again to that sense of deeper aspiration. And we've mentioned it already over these days, but just the sense of what is it that we're most deeply moved by in our life, in our hearts, in our practice. What is it that calls us to engage in this, no doubt, challenging at times pursuit or exploration? We may speak and or think, reflect in terms of peace, freedom, openness of heart, genuine well-being. So many ways we can express this. And to really bring that again and again to mind in those moments where you might just kind of decide, yeah, we can just cruise from here. It's mostly downhill. And it's kind of like that. At this point in the retreat, you might have noticed the days start to slip by quite quickly. Huh? The first day seemed to be a lot longer than today. Did anyone have that experience? The next day will be even shorter. And the day after that will be whoosh, slipping through our fingers before we know it. If we don't really recognize the preciousness of the opportunity, it's easy to not use it as well as we might. So sometimes people ask, and understandably, um, you know, how can I deepen my practice? What will allow me to, to sort of maximize the, the use of this potentiality that's here? And, uh, you know, one response to that is, well, just do what we're doing wholeheartedly. There isn't something else we're supposed to be doing here. 
And there are other responses too, a couple of which, one of which from um, one of my first teachers, uh, his response to the question was this. When someone would ask him, how can I deepen my practice? He would say, eat less, sleep less, sit more. And it's kind of interesting. We might not think we're sleeping too much or eating too much, and maybe we're not. But sometimes we can just be getting enough to stay comfortable. And we use that. Now, for some of us, this might not be a useful instruction. I'm not giving it or suggesting that this is what you should do. But there's something about that sense of really asking the question for us, ourselves, in a, in a genuine, in an authentic way. You know, sit more. It's not about sitting more. It's about really sustaining our practice through everything, through all the moments and experiences and the situations of our day. We, we kind of sort of encourage and suggest that as we go along through the retreat. You'll hear us, you know, sometimes it might seem like we're going on and on about this. But there's a reason for that. It really does make a difference. And there's another observation that was made when a, uh, I think it was, I'm not sure who, who it was that asked Ajahn Jumnian, who's a, a senior teacher in the, um, from Thailand, a monk, and, Thai forest monk, and uh, they asked him, you know, how can we deepen our practice? And his response was, you know, coming from the jungles of Thailand, he said, get out of your comfortable retreat centers. <laughs> Interesting. Now, again, I'm not suggesting we leave <laughs> or somehow make it uncomfortable because kind of external comfort is really the smaller issue here. It's really the process whereby we start to seek for inner comfort as opposed to freedom. That we really need to take care with regard to, to look, to ask ourselves genuinely to what extent this might be going on. And it may or may not be, but if I'm anything to go by, it's highly likely it might be going on for you as well, because I certainly notice that tendency and have throughout the years of practice. So one of the things that it's useful to reflect on is the way we can start to make our meditation practice into a subtle reenactment of the patterns of our lives, in which we start to play out the very same tendencies in a more refined and apparently spiritual way. So we can feel good about ourselves for the quality of our meditation. Realizing that, of course, having a nice car isn't that important. But having a good meditation, yeah, that's important. Huh? The process whereby we make this practice into something in which we're seeking to gain or avoid. Setting up a die... Where did that word go? What's the word? A dynamic. Thank you. Does that ever happen to you? You start a word. It's not like even you can't find the word. I was halfway through it. <laughs> a dynamic. Setting up a dynamic where we're sort of trying to succeed and fearing that we might fail. Measuring ourselves with the experience that's arising and using it to determine we believe or imagine in our minds whether we're a good meditator or a failed meditator. That whole process of being caught in hope and fear is an expression of a way in which 
we're most of us, much of the time when we're not conscious, driven to seek security, to seek certainty, to seek safety in the midst of a world that does not really offer us very much of that. And this is really the theme I want to explore this evening. What it means for us as human beings to be subject to this drive, this movement, this urge to seek security, to seek certainty, to seek safety in a world and in a condition, a circumstance which doesn't really offer that much of this. So much of the process of whereby we try and control our experience in order to make it comfortable or easy and avoid it being uncomfortable, painful or difficult is not just because we like pleasant things and don't like unpleasant things. Of course, that's part of it. It's because underlying the ability to manipulate the experience, if we're able to, is the way that gives us a sense of security. It gives us a sense of control if we're successful at it. And that is something that's deeply attractive to most of us, it would seem. This way in which we can look at or sense our relationship to life is that we're afraid it may not be something we can bear. If we don't control, if we don't organize, if we don't manipulate it in order to make sure we can cope with it, we're afraid that we may not be able to. And this is something very scary, very threatening, I think, for most of us. And it shows itself in the preoccupation we have with how do I produce a certain effect. Looking so much into our past, so much of our fascination with history is trying to figure out how things happened and to figure out how our contribution to the things that happened gave rise to this or that result. So that therefore in the future we can reproduce the result that we want and avoid producing the result that we don't want. I don't know if you've had a sense of that at times and noticing the, the interest in you know what happened, how it happened, what did I do, what should I have done, is because then we want to take it into the future as a blueprint, as a plan, as an organized strategy for dealing with whatever it is that's coming towards us that we actually don't yet know and can't predict what it will be. But the very fact that we kind of have some sense of what worked or didn't work according to whatever we mean by that, and that's a very interesting question in itself, what worked. Um, sometimes it means the bad things went away and the good things stayed. It's not necessarily what worked means in terms of dharma. But that, that process is, it gives, by our engagement in it, some sense, and mostly it's an illusion, some sense that we're in control. Even feeling responsible for all the things that went horribly wrong and feeling really bad about it, makes us feel that, well, if I just got it right, then it would have been all right. So in the future, I'll make sure I get it right, and things will be all right. And again, there's an illusion that we create for ourselves of somehow a predictable, organized, reliable future in some way or form. At least that's what we lean into when we're leaning into the future. While, of course, that part of us that knows it might not quite work that way is equally 
perhaps anxious and fearful, but the whole engagement is based on trying to come to a place or construct an orientation into our life in which we're safe, in which we're secure, in which there's a, a sense of being protected from the really the vagaries of life, the unpredictable challenges we may or may not encounter. So when we notice that, we might notice as a a sense of a contraction, a tightening, a hardening. It's almost like our body starts to become solid and rigid because that solidity or rigidity is almost like mimicking the sense of what we want in terms of protection, like armor on the inside. In the midst of a world that's fluid and in flux, at least if I can get this thing to go solid, at least something's kind of predictable and reliable, but what we notice is that it's, it's a bit clunky and it doesn't actually feel that good on the inside. So as we start to notice the, the way in which fear and the need to control can be so dominant in our life, and not just our life, but in our world, and allow ourselves to experience it, and it's not comfortable, it's not easy to feel it, it begins to soften, it begins to open. And this is part of the, the natural process of the meditative journey, is that we start to reconnect with our sensitivity. The tendency to control, to resist, is really born of a profound discomfort we have with our human vulnerability, with what it means to be something that is subject to impingement. And Christina was speaking about chitta, this morning, the sense of heart-mind. One of the ways I've heard that described that I find very helpful is the sense of that which is affected and responds. The sense of heart-mind is something that's affected and it responds. And of course we can respond with reactivity or there can be a responsivity that's coming from wisdom and compassion. But What's significant in terms of what I'm reflecting on here is the sense of what we call this heart-mind is something that is affected, impacted, impinged upon, is sensitive to so much that comes towards us, it seems, or arises within us, it seems. And it's useful just to reflect on the degree of that sensitivity. I find it helpful, important, because it it kind of makes sense of why we can be so caught and wedded, it seems, to this defensiveness, this, this attempt to control and secure our circumstance, our experience. You know, we can notice how just sometimes a little sound going nearby unexpectedly can send. I don't know if you had this, but something moves or a sound outside and it's like a jolt of electricity can go through the whole body. It's like, with alarm. It's like, whoa, we're wired up because that might have been our last chance to escape getting eaten by a saber-toothed tiger, that little sound, you know? And our body goes, and of course it was just our neighbor doing something minor and it's really not anything we need to be concerned about. Sort of, it's so easy for us to be impacted. One of the, and particularly coming here to IMS, I, I come in the summer 
and it's hot. It's like really hot. It's the two times I come is in generally, is not every year, but in July, and it's really, really hot. And then I come regularly in, um, at New Year's, and it's winter, and it's really, really cold. <laughs> and it's kind of like one gets the sense of how much effort we have to put in just to maintain some reasonable ease of bodily temperature, you know, with fans and water and at this time of year and all of that, and uh, you know, layers of clothes and heating and all of that at the other time. And, you know, as human beings, we're comfortable at about... Sorry, I have to do this centigrade. I should, have, I should have translated this, but I can only think in centigrade. If anyone can tell me the translation. Um, but we're probably comfortable from something like about 18 to 24 degrees centigrade. I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit. This could be... Okay, so something around 70. Thank you. If it's a lot below that, or not that much below it or above it, we start to need to put on or take off clothes and start messing with sort of switches and buttons and things like that, which we have set up for that express purpose. And you know the range of temperature that's possible for things to inhabit, to exist in? It starts at minus 273 centigrade. That's, I don't know. It's a lot minus in Fahrenheit. <laughs> And at the other end, it's hundreds and thousands and millions of degrees, and it doesn't, really doesn't matter whether it's centigrade or Fahrenheit at that end. And there's this little window in the middle where we can live, and an even smaller window in the middle where we can be comfortable. And at the very core of our bodies, we have about five or six degrees from center in Fahrenheit, three or four in Celsius before we're actually really ill if the core temperature changes, and a few more degrees than that, and we're dead, up or down. You know, so, whoa, this is really a sensitive system we've got here. And it's really lucky we turned up on this planet. Because <laughs> if we turned up almost anywhere else out there with this body, we wouldn't have lasted a moment. And we wouldn't, we wouldn't have time to, to notice the lack of oxygen if we turned up somewhere else. It would be the temperature would get us like that. And, of course, that's just at a physical level. We are sensitive human beings. At an emotional level, equally. You know how sweet it is for us when someone is kind to us? How deeply a kind word can touch our hearts, leave a register an impression that resonates? And how a harsh or critical word can pierce us right through the heart and leave us feeling troubled, for days, weeks, months, sometimes, from a few words. A few words have that power. We're so sensitive. We so want somebody to be nice to us, it seems. Not everybody, maybe. Some people maybe don't mind, but I do. I want somebody to be nice to me. And it's easy to notice how sometimes we go into a situation and we're just trying to make sure we can make this be okay. You know, It's quite a relief to not have to talk. Because we don't have to deal with that whole thing about, oh my gosh, will they think I'm okay? Will they tell me I'm okay? What if they tell me I'm not okay? What if someone else, even worse, hears them telling me I'm not okay? And then everybody knows it. It's like, wow, so much trouble, so much stress and strife goes on around that. And so, 
acknowledging that we are in this condition. This is one of the ways we can understand the Buddha's teaching of dukkha, of the unsatisfactory, the suffering, the struggle of life, the sense of it's not in our control. And it impacts us. It impinges us. It affects us. We are affected. We can't be not affected. If we try and keep everything out so it doesn't affect us, the very effort to keep everything out will affect us. No way around that. We are affected. That's one of the definitive characteristics of our existence, is being affected. And because we're impinged on in this way, and we're sensitive and we feel deeply, it's very easy to get caught up in, as a response to this vulnerability, this ex sensitivity and exposure, to be really caught up in a busyness to, to try and protect ourselves, to try and make ourselves feel safe. So much of the busyness that we come with is this trying to find safety. So much of how we actually continue to keep ourselves busy on retreat is the ways in which we try to use the meditation to do the same thing. So, we have some options here. To illustrate one of them, or the as one of the aspects of these possibilities, I, I always find myself going back to an experience I had when I was teaching a retreat in the Pyrenees, the, um, the foothills of the Pyrenees in southern France. And we were camping. We were outside. So we didn't have walls. We had canvas roofs, but we were outside pretty much all the time doing. And it was about July. It was this time of year. There, It was also pretty hot. There wasn't a lot of shade. There were a lot of bugs. There were no air conditioning. There were no walls. So it was quite challenging in a lot of levels. And actually, that's how men and women practiced through most of the generations until relatively recently. It's out there. And there was this one point where I was sitting um, in this rather lovely place, as it was, and there was this fly buzzing around me. And it probably is a very close relative of the deer fly you have here. But at that point, I didn't know this creature. It just looked like a fly until it landed and poor, it hurt. So of course, just brushed it off. And landed again. And I was sitting there, and I was like, okay, you know, sort of like, you know, all right, I was just ready. And I was getting more and more agitated, more and more distressed. And every time, these little sharp, this fly. And I didn't want to kill it. I, you know, I take the precepts really seriously, actually. No, serious. I, I, I feel it's really important, that sense of respect. It's, you know, sometimes when vast organizations, corporate or governmental organizations, disregard a, an individual or a community, it's not so different. They insignificant to me, but it's that person's life. A fly, it's not so different. That's the fly's life. But anyway, this fly was making my life pretty difficult, it seemed to me. So, brushing off, and then at some point I realized, this, this guy's not giving up. He's not going away, and I don't want to kill him. So, okay, let's just try this one. And let him bite. And it's interesting, he landed. And this, that was the same that had already happened about 17 times by then. And then it was like, oh, okay. A little sort of tingle, itch, tingle, itch. 
Oh, okay, actually, that's not so bad. Yeah, just sitting with this. Interesting. Feeling some degree of relaxation starting to return and just sensing. For me, what stood out so clearly here, because basically, after a little while, it flew off, was gone, happy. Back to feed the children. <laughs> but what stood out to me is that the amount of pain and agitation I experienced was far in excess of the pain involved in that. And in fact, if I hadn't brushed it off me 17 times, that would have only needed to happen once. That was the bit in the end I thought, really? But it was true. One time was all I needed to experience that. And so much of the agitation, the busyness that can drive a human life to distraction and despair is this constant trying to brush off these things that touch us. And it's not actually because of the discomfort in the end, I realized, of that. It's more the sense of, no, I can't allow something else to have a meal on me or, you know, do that to me. It's like it breaches the illusion of my integrity, my security, my capacity to take care of myself, all of that, it would seem. And yet suddenly, that's not the most important thing. But opening to what life is presenting right here, which is really, in the end, just sensations. Just sensations, not so different than the ones we sit within the meditation hall. So, as we allow ourselves to be affected by our experience here, we start to come more into contact with this sensitivity. We start to feel more deeply. There's something sweet and beautiful about that at times. We can feel really touched and uh, nourished or inspired by simple things. But equally as we can feel sort of almost pinioned or pierced by things at times. And there's a, a process of opening that happens through this. That isn't something we do. But it happens when we stop trying to do something to prevent it happening. We start to allow ourselves again to become softened. To become, well it's not even to become, but really more to consciously and acceptingly inhabit the vulnerability that is part of what it means to be what we are to be subject to the impingement, the impact, the touch of life, of this world. And so there's this one whole process whereby we, we kind of get busy with trying to do things to protect ourselves. It's one aspect of how we respond to the, the vulnerability of our life. Another primary way we respond to it is the way in which in our minds we start to form very fixed beliefs and certainties about the way things are. And this tendency to take hold of, to grasp onto our beliefs and our ideas and our conceivings, this the Buddha spoke of as one of the four great attachments. The things, and I don't mean by great like, wow, that's really great. I mean like big, significant. The attachment to views and opinions, to beliefs and ideas. The, the four great attachments we've, we've touched upon or will 
not in that form, but the, the first great attachment is to its sense, sense pleasures. Christina was speaking about yesterday, and we've touched in other times, and the second of the great attachments is to rites and rituals. The idea that something else or some kind of form is going to do it for me if I just go through the motions. And it's a little bit like some of what I spoke about three nights ago with that sense of where we kind of want somebody else to do it for us. Or if we think I just do the thing according to the form, then it will all happen. The third great attachment, the attachment to views and opinions. So I should say then, the fourth is the attachment to self. I'm not going to pick that one up tonight, but we'll come back to it. The attachment to views and opinions. This is something that it's really useful to look at. Particularly because it's very easy for us to, in the context of exploring and engaging with a spiritual practice, to really pick up a whole lot of them that go by the name of our religion or our philosophy. And, of course, there can be a lot of value and importance in understanding correctly right view. And there's a way in which we easily start to make an orthodoxy out of our practice and out of our understandings. And that orthodoxy doesn't serve us. The, the way in which it's so important for most of us to know and to be right, I don't know if this is something you reflect on, but it's certainly something for me. I really... You know, most things I can cope with, but being wrong, I do not like. I really, in fact, it's fortunate that I'm not often, so. <laughs> but it did happen once or twice, so, you know. And we can see, if we look at our world, how that need to be right leads to such tragic conflict between ideologies whether religious, philosophical, or economic, and war, and violence. And what is it about knowing that we're right that's so useful or important? Again, it gives a sense of security, or at least believing that we're right, and that we know the way things are. It gives a sense of security. Information has become one of the most important currencies in our world, because as has been said by someone wise some long time ago, you know, information is power. Power gives us control, security. It's so much about that. And we've got it coming in so much now. We're plugged into it. We'll be mainlining it pretty soon. You know, there'll be computer chips embedded in our bodies picking up a wireless system. They've already got the technology. It's not just on the movies. You know? And somehow thinking that the more of that that's coming through us, we're better off. We create the illusion of security with information. But knowledge is always relative. There's no such thing as absolute certainty with knowledge. There's no such thing. All knowledge, all models, and all ways of describing things are always conditional, always relative, always dependent upon assumptions. The most basic building blocks of knowledge, are always, there's always assumptions in them. Because we don't have perfect information. We don't know everything that impinges or that affects a circumstance. And yet, we're so remarkably able to convince ourselves that right now we do, you know, to the extent that a few hundred years ago, people were willing to kill someone who said the world was flat. They were so threatened and angry about that assumption. Whereas now, of course, we look at that and think, how strange, how foolish. 
How unbelievable. And yet, do we not ourselves also believe the way we see things to be? It really is that way. Despite the history of science and knowledge being a constant overturning of all the ways we thought it was, you know, in science they told you, first of all, atoms were the smallest thing you could ever make. Then they were made of little things spinning around the outside. They were like little, you know, cherries and apples and oranges. And then those things don't really exist because they're made of little bits of something and in the end there's nothing there. But it turns out to be this. We don't know a thing about it, really. We just got some nice ideas that help explain it up to a certain point and then at a certain point fail to explain it. Like how it got started in the first place, amongst other things. So noticing, and it's not that we have to abandon our perceptions and our understandings and our views about things, but to begin to introduce some questioning, and this can be very helpful, the sense of staying open, leaving room for uncertainty, so that when we, when we confront or we reflect on an idea, it's like, hmm, maybe, and maybe not. When we find ourselves conceiving in regard to ourselves, I'm like this, I'm not like that, da-da-da-da-da, it can be so helpful sometimes, rather than trying to say, no, 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 that's not true, and assert the opposite, or it is true, it's to actually just more say, oh, maybe, maybe not. Do you have a sense of what that brings? It's like what I notice with that, it sort of it just kind of opens it up. It's not like you move from this position to the opposite position. It's just like you kind of acknowledge that, oh, actually, I don't know exactly. I can't define myself exactly or what's happening exactly. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe what I'm saying right now makes sense to you and has some use. Maybe not. But just staying open to the possibility that there's something here to learn. One of the first books, I, Dharma books I uh, read, which I found while I was traveling in India, was by uh, Nyanaponika Tera, who's um, one of the early monks and translators. I think he was German originally, but he, he spent his monastic years mostly in Sri Lanka. And uh, in his book, The Heart of Buddhist Meditation, which is sort of kind of a classic in terms of this practice, early classic from the 60s. There's a phrase that he, um, in, I think it was pretty much the introduction or first chapter, that he said something pretty close to this. He said, true wisdom is always young and always close to the grasp of an open mind that has painfully reached its heights and earned its right to hear it. True wisdom is always young. There's something about when we understand and see truly. It has a freshness, a youngness. It's not old. It's not recycled. It's not coming out of the past. And we recognize that in a, in a moment of seeing something clearly. It's like, yeah, there's a freshness to it. It's young. And it's available. It's open. Or it's accessible to an open mind that has painfully reached its heights. That condition of openness of mind requires us to question and relinquish our beliefs. And I'm just remembering, I can't remember who it was that said that. To keep an open mind, I have to relinquish one deeply held belief every day. Because otherwise, they just pile up. There was some wise person who said that. I don't remember their name. So... What is this to contemplate the importance of an open mind?
It's such a precious thing to cultivate and practice. And it's so challenging to allow ourselves to be open to the ambiguity, the uncertainty, the imprecision and the unpredictability of what life brings to us. This understanding that having a closed mind limits our possibilities and the possibilities of discovery was brought home to me very graphically once when I was um, in Australia and I was teaching a retreat in the Wat Buddha Dhamma in, the, um, in New South Wales in the, the, uh, the rainforest of the Dara National Park. And I'd never been to this place before. I'd been given a lovely little cootie about um, I don't know, 20 minutes walk from the, the little retreat center there. And uh, the retreat was starting the next day. I'd arrived early to get over the jet lag. So I thought I'd go out for a run, which is what I like to do um, wherever I go places to help me land. And I was, went for a run out through this little path through the rainforest and then into the sort of going for a little while. And then at some point, it was very enclosed, and I saw this hilltop that I thought, oh, maybe from up on the hill I'll get a view. And I like views. I spend a lot of time in the wilderness. I like to get up somewhere high and see what's around me. So I thought, okay, I left the path, and I just you know, made my way up to the top of the hill. And uh, actually, I couldn't see that much from up there. So I thought, oh, well, okay. So I headed back down. And I, you know, quite confident with the situation. I headed down and then headed down and then headed down. And then I thought, I should have got to the path by now, but oh, maybe it was just a little further. So I kept going down. It wasn't there. I thought, oh, oh I must have just missed it. And I, you know, I paid attention as I went up. I'd done the things one does, noticed where the sun was, da da. Went back up to the top. I thought, hmm, I'd better check it again. Went down, still didn't find the path. Oh, okay. But I know where it is, it's just down there. So I went up and I went down. I actually went up and down this portion of this woody hillside for what became one hour, two hours, and it was starting to get dark and it was starting to cool down and I was wearing just a very brief pair of shorts and a singlet and my running shoes. And I started to think, gosh, what's happened here? I can't find the path. But I know where it is, it's just down here. So I went even further down and I looked around and no, so I went back up to the top and after this had been going on for a while, I realized I can't seem to find the path. Hmm, it's really weird, because I know it's just down there. But it was getting dark, and it was quite steep, so I thought, if I keep going down looking for it down there, I'm going to hurt myself, so maybe I'm staying here tonight. And I was like, gosh, okay, this is interesting. Here's me, supposedly experienced outdoors guy, you know, stuck on a hill. Nobody knows I'm here. And so I was just kind of gathering some leaves and things together, wondering about snakes and centipedes and scorpions, all of which they have in Australia, and they absolutely don't have in New Zealand, so it's kind of like, you know, a bit scary. And then suddenly, as I was reflecting on my situation, I thought, you know, you're really sure the path is down there, but you've gone down there and looked really carefully, and it's not there. You don't know where the path is. And in that moment a burst of visceral existential terror of my imminent death. Just, it wasn't funny, but you can laugh. It burst through me like, I mean, we know this, the outcome, because I'm here. <laughs> but it burst through me like, like lightning. It was one of the most strong things I've ever encountered. 
Because in that moment, my mind just, this whole sense of, you don't know where you are. You could have got 180 degrees reoriented. You might be looking in the wrong valley. You don't know where you are. You're going to die up here. No one's going to come looking for you until you don't turn up for the opening talk. And that one just went, and I was shaken. But it was also like, cleansed. Because then what came into my mind was, so you don't know where that path is, but actually what you do know is it's not down there where you think it is. Because <laughs> you've checked it out really carefully. So why not try somewhere else? And so I said, okay. So I just checked again my orientations. It was, there was enough moonlight to see a little bit by now. So I said, okay, 25 degrees clockwise. I'll try down there. And I went down the path, went down the, the mountainside there, thinking, it can't be down here. This is not the way I came up. Ten minutes later, there was the path. I was like, I wasn't disappointed to find I was wrong. And I made my way back. And what was really interesting for me, reflecting on this experience, was that as long as I held on to the sense that I knew where the path was, that's what kept me trapped there. As soon as I opened to the fact that I didn't and could no longer defend myself against the terror that that unleashed, I then had the possibility of checking out the other options. And I'd been, as I went down, I'd been thinking in my mind, okay, I'll go down here, 25 degrees. If I don't find, I'll come back up and I'll actually try as many different ways down this hill as I can find. It was a very salutary lesson for me. And the metaphor is very clear in terms of our sense of path. So often we construct a sense of what it is and how it should look and where it is. And somehow that closes down the options of what is possible. So there's an ancient prayer that goes something like, May... I be protected from the cowardice that shrinks from new truth, the laziness that is content with half-truth, and the arrogance that believes it knows all truth. And what does that mean then for our practice? What it means, it seems to me, is that we need to learn to live with, to rest in the discomfort of uncertainty. This fundamental aspect of what is true. Because uncertainty is one of the features of what is true for what it means to be a human being. Uncertainty. Despite how much time and energy and investment we put into it personally and collectively, it we put into trying not to really be confronted with that. You know, if we really want something that's certain, if we really want certainty in life, it's available. The certainty is that we're going to die. It's the only one. And having looked for certainty in order to feel better, somehow that doesn't do it. <laughs> We can get drawn into 
belief systems that give us some sense of security around the fact of death, that tell us we're going to heaven if we're good, or somewhere else if we're not. We can get into the uh, scientific materialistic viewpoint that says, nah, we die, that's it, it's all over. And the truth of both of those perspectives is that we don't know. And we can't know. We don't know and we can't know. And even if we could know, we have got absolutely no idea what that would be like to experience or what that means for what we call me. We really don't. So, to really allow ourselves to be confronted by this. Voltaire once said, uncertainty is indeed an uncomfortable condition. But certainty? Certainty is ridiculous. <laughs> but can we take that on board? Can we really allow ourselves to feel how all of this that's going on is more fluid and less fixed than we imagine? How this very experience and process of being here is not what we have imagined or conceived it to be, or certainly not limited to just being that. What or how does it affect us? How does it affect you to reflect, to contemplate that possibility? What I notice when I'm not so sure I know what's going on is that I'm much more mindful naturally. It's like when I'm not quite sure of the situation, it's like going into a strange situation where we're not, we've never been there before, we tend to pay attention. We can't go in there habitually because it's uncertain to us. I remember having a very interesting experience where I was going to a sort of a it's like a dinner party gathering, and there was a really important Buddhist person there who I'd never met, the ed then editor of Tricycle. I'm not sure if she still is. And I didn't know what she looked like, Helen Torkov. And so I thought, I'd like to meet this person, but I'm not sure who she was. So I noticed myself being very respectful to all of the people who I thought it might be. <laughs> and it was kind of funny to watch, but it's like, oh, when you don't know, something different happens. When we don't know, something different happens. It's only when we've decided that these people are important and those ones not really, that we could possibly meet any human being with less than amazement, actually. And certainly respect. So, we talk about ignorance or blindness in this tradition as the root cause of suffering. The fact of not really understanding the way things are. And when we relate that to this uncertainty, this kind of not knowing, what it seems is significant here is that if we really don't know, then the thing about ignorance is it's dangerous when we think we know. When we don't really know, but we think we know, that's when we get into trouble. That's what we call ignorance. But when we don't know and we know we don't know, that's innocence. And that's something very different that invites a completely different way of meeting this world, 
ourselves or what we understand to be me or you or anything, in fact, that we understand to be a thing. And yet we meet it with just a little sense of maybe that's what it is and maybe not. When we look at life this way, I think it's more obvious that really this isn't a problem we're obliged to fix, this existence. It's actually something remarkable, ineffable, mysterious, that we're invited to penetrate, to enter into, to understand not from looking at or thinking about, but from our wholehearted engagement and entry into it until we're not apart from it in any way. And in that unconditional entry into this conditionality, this vulnerability, this openness, the understanding of what this is comes not as a conceiving or as a languaging of a something or a not something, but as a knowing that isn't in terms of language that isn't in terms of beliefs or certainties, but simply what happens when we don't take a position for or against, in or out, this or that, here or there. They're all positions, now or then. They're all positions that we tend to take and believe have some absolute reality. And when we don't take that, don't take positions in that way, when we leave that room for maybe, maybe not, we'd have to negate the positions, just raising that gentle question with them, then really we are already in this that is. We already are of this that is, which we could call life, this moment, right here, aliveness doing what aliveness does. Well, we don't need to put any words on it either. And this very life is pouring through. This very existence of sight and sound and smell and taste and touch and thought and feeling and care and sensitivity and all of this is pouring through, it seems, unstoppably. Pouring through the space that we call here, now, this. But which we don't really need to call anything. So from this perspective, from the understanding of uncertainty, of vulnerability, from the accepting and inhabiting that dimensionality of truth, in the way we encounter it, of what is true in the way we encounter it. Freedom is not a destination. It's not an end point or an outcome of some successful sort of pursuit of technology or technique. Freedom is what is here when we release the views and the beliefs that limit us into conceiving it in any way at all. 
And really when we aren't looking into this life through the fixity of view, through the need for security, there is just this. Ryokan, Zen monk in the 18th century, 17th, 18th century, he, he once said, Do you want to know what has been in my heart since before the beginning of time? Just this. So may we all, through our practice and in our lives, make our own peace with the uncertainty and the vulnerability of life. To know deeply the freedom that is revealed when all views dissolve. For our own well-being, for the welfare of all beings, Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.